Well, we are continuing today in our Binge Reading the Bible series. And if you've signed up for the 90-day Bible Reading Challenge, I want you to continue reading. I just want to encourage you to do that from wherever you're at. Just keep reading the Bible, even if you have to go past 90 days to finish it. And if you haven't started the challenge, it's never too late to start. So go to the website, sign up for the challenge. You'll get the information you need to start the 90-day Bible reading challenge. Well, today we're going to be looking at the historical books that are found in the Old Testament. Uh, The Bible is really a fascinating book, isn't it? As you begin to read it, it's sometimes confusing, sometimes just enlightening, sometimes it's encouraging, but altogether it's a remarkable collection of books written by over 40 different authors from a variety of occupations, written on three different continents and three different languages over the span of 1,500 years, and yet it all points in a unity of direction. And it all points, I believe, to Jesus. And so it's a remarkable thing that we hold in our hands or on our phones um, as we read the Bible. But of course, we believe that this Bible is not just written by human hands, but that it's actually inspired by God, literally God-breathed words that we get to read for ourselves. And so that's why they're useful for us today. And that's why the point of reading the Bible is not just to access information, but the point of reading the Bible is transformation. And I hope we really get that as we read the Bible together. Well, one of the things I want to point out as we start today is that all of these books, they actually represent different literary styles. And that's really important to pick up and to take seriously when we approach reading the Bible. If we want to read it for all it's worth, we need to take seriously the different literary contexts of the scriptures. If you were able to walk into a bookstore today, uh, you would notice, of course, that there are different sections within the bookstore. Uh, There's the nonfiction section and the fiction section. Over by Starbucks, there's the magazines for people who need to grab a quick read. There's a section for poetry. And somewhere way at the back is the increasingly weird religious book section. (laughs) And you can find all kinds of things there. But you know that when you grab a book from one of those sections, that you're going to be reading a particular style of writing. And your expectations will match that style as you read it. A number of years ago, I was given a book to read, and it's a book that's actually one of the best-selling books of all time in Canada, and some of you will recognize the title, The Wealthy Barber. Now, I have really no point in having a book like that because I'm not wealthy and I have no hair. And so a book like The Wealthy Barber would not be well-suited to me, but I decided, since someone gave it to me, that I would read it. Now, I didn't bother reading anything about it. I didn't read the front cover or the back cover. I just started. At first, I was amazed at this story. This barber in like Sarnia, Ontario, he was so smart. And every time people would come in for a haircut, he would give them financial um, advice. And in particular, to these two young couples, he gave amazing financial advice. And I began to think to myself, I wonder if I can meet this guy. I wonder if this guy is still around. Is he alive? Does he still live in Sarnia? Is he still cutting hair? And then I realized, first of all, the story isn't actually true. And second of all, 
it wasn't really actually a novel. It was just the backdrop that someone had created in order to push some financial principles. Well, I think I got to chapter three, and once I found that out, I just stopped reading the book. That might explain my financial situation today. Who knows? But the idea is, there was nothing wrong with the book, but my expectations didn't match the book because I thought I was going to be, be reading a true story put into novel form, and I was excited. And when my expectations didn't match that, then I lost interest in the book. Well, I think we have to be really careful as we come to Bible reading that we understand the literary style of the passage that we're reading. That will help us to access the content, the information, and be transformed by it. There are three main literary styles that we find within the Bible. And there's lots of different nuances to these styles, but the three main ones are these. First of all, there's narrative. There's story. That accounts for about 43% of biblical content. The, the second main section is poetry. And poetry accounts from, for about 33% of the Bible. And we read story and we read poetry very differently. So keep that in mind. But then there's another section which some people call uh, prose discourse. It's just kind of like lectures. Um, just information that's being shared in a particular format, and that accounts for about 24% of our Bible. So here's my point this morning, and this will be important as we come to the historical books. My point is that almost half of the Bible is in narrative form. Almost half the Bible takes the form of storytelling. And once we relax into that, once we watch for those kind of plot and character and themes and, and all that we use when we're reading stories, we will be able to access the Bible, I think, a lot more and a lot more effectively. And so when we come to the historical books, this becomes very important. Now, why is there so much story? Why so much narrative in the Bible? I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one of the reasons is simply that a lot of the early material in the Bible was given through oral transmission. It was carefully told by storytellers from generation to generation until it was finally written down. And so it takes the form of story. And I can almost imagine that when I read some of these passages, that people gifted by God, prophets and others, would recount the acts of God in the past so that future generations could remember them and hear those stories. And they would do it around the cooking fire. They'd do it out in the field. They'd do it when they had the temple. They would retell the stories of God over and over again. And so that's partly why we have so much story. But also because story is so compelling. It's such a great way to enter into truth through story. I don't know about you, but when I read a really good novel, I sometimes have to wait before I pick up the next one. Because when I start reading the next novel, I don't want to leave behind all the characters that I've gotten to know in the first novel. I don't know if you're like that. But when we read a really good story, we get immersed into the story. And the characters become alive to us. And I think that's what we're meant to get when we read the living Word of God, when we immerse ourselves in these stories. These are true living characters. Unlike the wealthy barber, these people actually existed. And so we get to interact with them, engage with them, 
immerse ourselves in the story. That's so important as we come to this. Well, the historical books in the Bible, they follow the story of God through judges, right through into the United Monarchy, which is the United Kingdom under David and Solomon and others, to the divided monarchy. This is when the nation separated out into the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom of Judah. And then right through into the exile, exile and the restoration of God's people into the land. And so basically we're talking about the books from Joshua to Esther. These are the historical texts that we find. But we have to be really careful here because when we say history, some of you go right back to grade 10 high school history class and you think, boring. But this is not a dry historical textbook. That's not the way it's written. It's written in narrative form for the most part. And so we get to enter into this compelling narrative, this historical story that we get to read. In fact, and here's a big point that will help us unlock the keys to these passages. This is theological narrative. In other words, even though we have great characters like Joshua and Gideon, characters like Samson and Deborah, uh, characters that we find in the stories like Hannah and Samuel and Saul and David and Ruth and Esther. These names are familiar to us, right? Even though we have these larger-than-life, amazing characters, there is one character, really, in all these stories, because all of these stories are about God. That's the main character throughout all of these stories, and that's what we focus on, and that's why it's theological narrative. It's the story of God that we're seeing unfold through human events in history. And that's what makes it uh, so incredibly exciting. And so the Bible contains this grand redemptive story of God, and it's vitally interested in actual history, events that actually happened in space and time. And it's how those events reveal God's character that we're called to pay attention to. So how do we read these historical books? Here's three tips for reading the historical books, and then we're going to take these tips and apply them to the passage that was read for us today. First tip, connect the dots. When you read the passage in the historical books, you will find something in the setting or something in the character or something in the words that will repeat again and again and again right into the New Testament, right to Jesus. And the better that you can connect the dots, the more you will see the unfolding story of God throughout all time. So work hard at connecting the dots. Second tip, find yourself in the story. Allow yourself to become immersed. Sometimes I call the Bible a sacred mirror. It not only reveals God, but when we look into it, we see ourselves. We see our sin, we see our weaknesses, but we also see our potential through the redemptive act of God's grace. And so see ourselves in the story. That's the second tip I would have. And then the third tip is really important, and that is watch for God. If this is theological narrative, then ultimately we want to ask the question, what is this story telling us about God? Because the reality is that there's way more stories that could have been told. But the writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, have selected these stories to teach us something specific about God. 
when you tap into that, you'll unlock the whole passage. So how do we apply this to the reading that we had today? And I, I chose this reading for a reason. Out of all of the historical passages, this one to me is an absolute pivotal time, the anointing of David by Samuel. And so it's a very important time in the redemptive history, not only of Israel, but the redemptive history of the whole world. And we're going to see that. Um, the book of Samuel, and in, in the Hebrew Bible, there's actually just one book of Samuel. We've split it up into First and Second Samuel because of the length of the scrolls. But there is just one book of Samuel, but it might be better entitled the book of David, because really the main character through First and Second Samuel is King David and not Samuel. Uh, the books tell uh, the story of David's life um, with the purpose of demonstrating that David was a man after God's own heart, and he was the right choice to be Israel's king. That's the purpose of Samuel's writing. And so next to Jesus, I would say this, David is the most important historical figure in the Bible. And we find that just by the sheer volume of writing about him, just by the, the real estate that he takes up within the Bible. Um, Abraham was important, and he gets about 14 chapters. Uh, Joseph, very important figure, 14 chapters. Jacob, a little bit less, 10 chapters. Moses gets an astounding 40 chapters. But David gets 66 chapters dedicated to him and is mentioned in the New Testament at least 57 different times. So do you get this, the importance of this moment, of this anointing of David and how he's such a pivotal character within not only the history of Israel, but the history of the world. And so let's take the first principle. Let's see if we can connect some dots together. Well, Samuel is actually the last of the judges. There's been a period of the judges when Israel was really a loose collection of tribes. And these judges came and gave leadership, sometimes came and gave deliverance. There were sometimes wild and radical characters. We think of Samson. Uh, but Samuel is, is not just a prophet. He's really the last of these judges. And there came a point right at the end of the time of the judges where it seemed like everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes and Israel had no king. And so Israel comes together, looks around at the other nations and says, we want a king just like the other nations. And so God instructs Samuel to go and anoint Saul. Saul is the first king of Israel. But Saul is chosen on kind of dubious terms. He's chosen because he looks like a king, largely because he's a head and shoulders above everyone else. And as soon as people see him and Samuel points to him, they shout out, long live the king. And poor Saul, he does pretty well at the beginning of time. But then over the course of his kingship, he, he descends into just being really off the rails, literally, uh, through jealousy, through disobedience, through other acts. And so now it's time for him to be replaced. And David is God's choice for king. But here's the dot that I want to connect. Notice the setting of this story. Where does it take place? Take a moment just to think about that. Where does this story of the anointing of David take place? Well, it takes place in Bethlehem. And that's incredibly important. And where do we see that again and again? I mean, we just celebrated Christmas, so this should be pretty fresh in our minds. 
but Bethlehem becomes that dot that we can connect throughout many parts of Scripture. Long after David was dead and buried, we read a prophecy, and a prophecy comes out in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, and it says this, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So this is no longer talking about David, but talking about a descendant of David who will come from Bethlehem. Well, now fast forward again to another dot. We find in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, the gospel writer just picks up this exact verse and applies it directly to Jesus. When Matthew says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Matthew makes it even more connected to our original passage in 1 Samuel chapter 16, because he refers to the shepherd. Just as David was the shepherd king, so now we have a new shepherd coming from Bethlehem, that is Jesus, the Messiah. And so once we start to connect the dots, we can see how this, this multi-volume um, work of, that's called the Bible is actually connected all the way through by the Spirit of God. And that's fascinating. So connect the dots. Well, let's look at this passage and apply the second principle, and that's this. Find yourself in the story. How do you find yourself in this story? I encourage you today to reflect on it and, and just hold it up as a sacred mirror and see where you find yourself in the story. I've been reflecting on this story for the last couple of weeks, and here's my lesson to me. God prefers the younger brother. Now, I'm sorry, my older brothers, but it's just the fact. It's the truth. Um, well, stay with me because I want to prove this to you and then make an actual legitimate point out of it. Um, Isaac is preferred over Ishmael. Jacob is chosen over Esau, even though he's younger. Joseph is chosen over his older brothers. Here, David is chosen over his older brothers. Even if we get to the New Testament and the story of the two sons, it's the younger brother that receives the grace of the father and actually enters into the party that's thrown for him. The older brother is, is kind of like the Pharisees that remove themselves from God's grace. And so it's the younger brother that's part of this story. Well, I realize that it's not really just about being the younger brother as I am in my family, uh, but there's a lesson here that I resonate with. See, the older brother in historical times that would be the one that would have all of the status, all of the power, all of the expectations to lead. But here's the point. God doesn't always work according to our expectations, especially when it comes to power. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26, Paul picks up this theme because it's a theme that goes all the way through both the Old and New Testament, that God often takes the weaker things the things that are on the margins, the things that are discounted by society and uses those things to show his grace, his goodness to the world. Paul says this, Remember, dear brothers, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose the things that are powerless 
to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. That's a principle I resonate with. I resonate with this idea that often I feel very unprepared and inadequate for what God has called me to do. But I trust that in my weakness, God's strength will be shown so that I don't get to boast about anything, but all the glory goes to God. That's an incredible thing that I resonate with. That's how I find myself in this story. So how do you find yourself uh, in this story today? Think about that. Well, last thing, last principle we want to apply to this passage, and that's this. Watch for God. Where do we see God in this passage? What do we see revealed about God's character? I think there's lots of things. But the one thing I want to come to is this verse 7, which says, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. For me, this is the climax of the story. It's not even the anointing of David. It's actually this statement. Israel chose a king in Saul according to outward appearance. Now, even though David was a handsome young guy, that was, that was evident in the story as well, but it was his heart that God was after. And that's the revelation of God that we're meant to get in this story, that God looks at the heart. You see, the Bible, the Christian faith, it's, it's not a, a whole scheme, a whole plan to make us behave better. It's not a behavioral modification program. It's not the external that God is really interested in. We can all put on a good show. We can all put on a good act. We can all learn how to behave appropriately in society. But God wants transformation at the heart level. He wants to change us from the inside out. And we can't do that ourselves. That's why in this story, it's the Spirit of God that comes on David and gives him this new heart, a heart to serve. That's what God is interested in. He's interested in our heart. Well, one of the things that always amazes me when I pick up the Bible and turn to the historical books is that this history is now my history. It, it wasn't in reality. I'm, I'm not uh, Jewish born. I'm not of Hebrew origins. And yet by the grace of God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of us who are believers in Jesus have been grafted into this family tree. And so these roots, these stories, these characters that we're reading about, they become part of our family heritage. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible to think about that? That we get to, in a sense, claim these stories as our own because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ in bringing us, in adopting us in to this amazing family. And so I want to encourage you to embrace God's redemptive story through these historical books and look to apply it by connecting the dots and finding yourself, but especially by watching for God as you read through the historical books of the Old Testament. Amen.